0: Well, are you ready to start? It's a good group here this morning. Wow. Chapter 2, verse 8 is where we want to pick up. We've already covered uh, that verse, but to key in especially on the second half, uh, see to it that no one uh, uh, takes you captive by empty, deceitful philosophy, philosophy of empty deceit. Now, we didn't quite finish this, but let's just real quickly review this, the rest of verse eight into verse nine. What are the characteristics of this empty, deceitful philosophy? It's according to human tradition. It's according to the essential spirits, and we talked about that last week. That Greek word is stoicheia, which really does refer to demonic power, uh, supernatural evil power, and that to me is quite insightful. And then, not according to Christ, which of course is the clincher. So, instead of a philosophy, and there's nothing wrong with philosophy as long as it's based on the truth centered in Christ, which he talked about earlier, it is according to that which is anti Christ, against Christ, the elemental spirits, the stoicheia of the world, and then according to human tradition. And that human tradition is what, for example, a philosophy based on Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, or any other, that's human tradition. That doesn't mean they don't maybe say some things that are right, but for the most part, they've got the whole view, worldview wrong. And so he then explains to us in the next verse, which is a marvelous verse. It is probably one of the most succinct verses on the Incarnation you can find in all the Bible. For in him, meaning in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells in the body. That's the Incarnation. That's the God-man, undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person. That's Jesus. So Paul is just saying, why (laughs) why would you stay away from empty deceitful philosophy? Because in Jesus, you have it all. The fullness of deity dwelling at home, literally it means at home in a body. That's the incarnation. God has revealed himself. God has revealed truth. And where do you start with truth? Jesus. And so, I mean, that has been his argument through the whole book so far, and we're only at the beginning of chapter 2. We, we have quite a bit to go yet. But he keeps bringing the Colossians back to this central point. Begin with Jesus. Don't begin with anything else. Whatever you're working through, whatever you're thinking about, whatever you're processing, whatever you're struggling with, start with Jesus. <laughs> And so that was such an important issue for the Colossians because they're Greco-Roman people. They were steeped in the Greek philosophy. That's just the way people were that lived in those cities that Paul addresses in his missionary journeys and in his letters. So he says, okay, set aside where you used to be. Begin to embrace a new worldview which starts starts with Jesus. Starts with Jesus. Starts with Jesus. And he keeps saying it over and over and over and over again. Do you think that's relevant for 2019? <laughs> I mean, it's the same message. You can dig into a lot of stuff to try to answer the life questions that everybody has, but if you don't start with Jesus, you're going to end up with the wrong answer. Now, I don't mean to make it sound so simple that it's almost crass, but even if it is crass, its its simplicity is profound. You start with Jesus. And if you don't start with Jesus, you're going to end up somewhere in the wrong ballpark. Now, not the Washington Nationals ballpark. They really are doing a great job. Don't you agree? Yes. I, I'm really prejudiced. I hope they win the World Series. I mean, I just think it's fantastic. We, Peggy and I've watched it the last two nights. I mean, they just really playing good ball. It has nothing to do with the Bible. So I just thought I'd throw that in because I used the metaphor of a ballpark, and it made me think of the Washington Nationals. Oh, my goodness. My <laughs> wife said, this was really, I don't mean to put her down. I, I'm not, but it was funny. She said, well, I didn't even know they had a, a baseball team in Washington, D.C. <laughs> but it's, uh, they used to be called way back the Washington Senators. But, I mean, yeah. I don't know when the name change occurred, but so I, I said, remember that, honey? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think I do remember. We used to live back in Pennsylvania, which, you know, it's a long time ago. They were called the Washington Senators. So, anyway. My, oh, my, how did I get off the track there? So he's now going to transition into an additional thought about Jesus, which is part of what I have up here in a minute. But I don't think uh, there's anything unclear. Is there anything you want to say or comment upon or or ask me about in terms of verse 8 and 9? Verse 9 is sort of a repeat of what he had been arguing in chapter 1, verses 15 through 19. If you want a, a fullness of deity, Okay, go back to 1, 15 through 19. That's a review of who Jesus is in terms of his deity. Okay?
1: So if you start with, if you're starting with Jesus, in what way are you starting with it? Because, you know, because, I had a call, some call member come to my door yesterday. And so, and she's telling me about how God is good. Telling me God's not responsible for all the evil that's in the world, and so uh, I didn't know exactly which cult member this was.
0: Jehovah's Witness, it was Jehovah's Witness. That was I'm almost 100% sure it was the Jehovah's Witness. But
1: God's not responsible for the things that are going wrong in the world. Well, so in order to, but I didn't think that Jehovah's Witnesses just came with only women because it was just two women, I thought they that's often. No, no, not always. Okay. There. And so she says, well, God is good. So she showed me some verse. I don't I don't even remember what it was. But, uh, <laughs> and so I said, so so I asked her, well, so I took control of the conversation. And I said, well, so you're, are you saying that God, uh, if he's not responsible for everything in the world, well, then is he not sovereign? I asked her. Well, that was a question she never even thought of right away because sovereignty was something she's never even considered. And so when she so she gave me an answer, she said, Well, no, he's not really sovereign. He's not completely sovereign. And so I thought, well, I
0: hope a whole bunch of lights went off in your yeah, mind. like a...
1: what in the world? <laughs> yeah. And so uh, so I took her to so I didn't know what to do with her. So I, I took her to uh well, I just want to right ask to the question then. I wanted to know do you have eternal life so I just asked her and she kind t- of stumbled around a little bit at that and then so I just asked her no I'm asking you personally do you know that you have eternal life and she said well, well no I, I don't really know that I have eternal life and so right then I knew that what she needed to hear was the gospel so I did start with Jesus you got to start with Jesus right there I said listen you have to trust in Christ. finished work on the cross in order to know that you have eternal life. I just explained it right straight out like that. You have to believe mm-hmm. in Him. He is, he is. All your works aren't going to do you any good when it comes to getting into heaven. And so I explained that to her. Well, see, so this is this is the way it is. You start with Jesus. Well, then of course my wife has had a hearing aid, has a hearing aid, and so we went to see her. Specialist for her hearing aid. And so that gal there, well, immediately you knew that I knew that this person was a Christian without even asking her any questions. Because when I started telling her about this event, well, she immediately said, telling somebody about the Lord. Mm-hmm. Well, non Christians don't say that.
0: No. They just don't. Yeah. often that's true. <laughs> and well, so
1: it does begin with Jesus. Well, it, so it, it, it's getting The question I to was them. asking her then too was, who is Jesus? Mm-hmm. And she didn't know. Well, she thought he was a man that
0: came from God. I thought, yeah. he's God. Yeah. The JWs uh, believe that Jesus was created. Created right. man. Not eternal. So the it eternal probably God. was it. Yeah. Jehovah's I'm pretty sure it was. There aren't many other groups that go door to door anymore. No. So I'm pretty no, sure. No seven-day ad They're not as common as they used to be. So, yeah. All right, look at verse 10. He goes on, now reminding them of the centrality of Jesus. He had said that in the previous paragraph. Now he says, and you have been filled. You have been filled in him. Now that word filled, um, if I can just comment real quickly, that word filled is pleroma. That was one of the words that the false teachers used. And so Paul is turning that term into a positive. You think you find play Roma in something else, fullness in something else. It's found in Jesus, in him. When, and, and in him, that little phrase, in him or in Christ, is used over 240 times in the New Testament. And it establishes our unity and our identity. Who are we? We're in Christ. And he says, then, again, what does that mean, fullness in him? He is the head of all rule and authority. That would relate to your comment, his sovereignty. And that takes you back to chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. So Paul is repeating himself and just, again, reaffirming the starting point is always Christ. He is the sovereign Lord. All authority. He's head over all authority. And so it's just reminding us fullness, completeness starts with Jesus. You will never find fullness or completeness if you start with something else. And so he's just reminding him that, of that: the centrality of Christ. Then he shifts, and this is what I want to get into now, he shifts to Another focus about being in him, in Christ. And so verse 11 starts with in him. As he just had talked about in the previous verse, in him. That is that circle, that sphere of identity. And that that sphere of authority. In your uh, notes, uh, I forget what page it is, but in your notes I gave you a copy of a PowerPoint slide I used. And again, I'm not quite sure, because I think some of the notes you have are a little different page numbers than mine. But here is that, the, you should page have that. 12. Pardon? Page 12. page 12. okay. So it's just, it, it's that, okay, in Christ, here is all, this is the language that Paul's been using in the book of Colossians. All that he talks about being in this circle, this sphere, this, this circle of identity. And then if you're outside of Christ, again, going, it's a little harder to read. You have to kind of go around the circle. Again, phrases he's been using throughout the book. And so the invitation of the gospel is come from outside of Christ, in Christ, by faith in his finished work. I mean, that you already know that. That's the gospel. But this is how he's constructing his argument in the book of Colossians. If you don't begin with Christ in whatever the issue is, whatever you're thinking about, whatever lifestyle question, whatever philosophical issue, if you don't start with Christ, you're still going to be outside. You're still going to be characterized by incomplete, forever empty, etc. All of those statements and phrases. And so, again, this is, the, this is the key to the life that God is calling us to in Christ. Now, let me put it. It isn't just fire insurance. Isn't that a horrible way to put it? It isn't just, this saves me from the judgment of God in hell, which it does. But it's far more than that. It's an entire world and life view. It is to result in your total transformation in how you think, your heart, your will. Everything about you is being transformed. And you need to see it that way. And so Paul says, now what I want to do is I want to shift. I want to talk about the kinds of things that presumably this false teaching is talking about. And he chooses two items. He chooses circumcision. And he chooses baptism. Two religious rituals. But he's going to use them Now, make sure you understand what I mean by this. He's going to use them metaphorically. He's going to use them figuratively. And so I would like to read these couple of verses. And I want to come back and look at the material I I put up here on this slide, or whatever you call that, paper. In him, remember the importance of that, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, By the circumcision of Christ. Very strange words. But they're very significant words, and we'll talk about them in a minute. Having been buried with him in baptism, continuing verse 12, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So let's stop there for a minute. Now, presumably... These false teachers that were invading the little uh, church at Colossae were were preaching some kind of Gnostic, early Gnostic, early uh, dualistic, Jewish, mixed heretical teaching. And they must have been saying something about circumcision. Now, let's just review a couple of things. Circumcision, as I think you know, a very important ritual practice of Judaism And circumcision is a sign of what covenant? The Abrahamic covenant. It was the identifying sign for the Jewish person that you have your boy circumcised on the eighth day. And that meant that child is now in the covenant community of Israel, and so on. Uh, It would be symbolically very important of what God is doing. He, He now... He now owns you as a nation, owns you as a people. That's not how, what he's talking about here. He's talking about the circumcision of Christ. But did you do notice what he said? You're circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So he's not talking about the Jewish rite of circumcision, is he? He says it's the one made without hands. So that's not the Jewish rite of circumcision he's talking about. So he's figuratively, metaphorically saying it's the putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In other words, the term flesh, sarcost, is used in the New Testament, largely in Paul's writings, of the old sin nature. He does talk about the flesh. One of the enemies of the believer is the flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil. So he, what is he saying here? Now listen very carefully to this sentence. Positionally, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you put your faith and trust in Christ, you're declared righteous, and the flesh is stripped off of you. Positionally. It no longer has any authority over you unless you give it that authority. So the, what Paul is saying, it's, it's, it's really an unusual way to say it. It's not the normal way he talks about this but it must have something to do with the nature and content of the false teaching. The circumcision that you guys are preaching or these false teachers are talking about, don't listen to them because you already have experienced the benefit of the circumcision of Christ, which is a very unusual way to put it. He doesn't normally talk like that, but it would have had some meaning to them. And what he means figuratively is Jesus has stripped off the power of the flesh in your life. Just like, you could say, of the devil, the devil has no authority or power over you at all unless you allow him to have power or authority over you. He has no claim on you anymore. You belong to Christ. And so that he's saying the same thing here, but a different enemy. It's the flesh. And so he says it's been stripped away by Jesus. You got it? Do you understand what he means there? He's taking a Jewish ritual. He says, now, you know, I'm not talking about, but I'm not talking about the one made with hands. I'm talking about what Jesus did, the circumcision of Jesus, when he stripped away the authority of the flesh in your life. One of your enemies has been dealt with by Jesus, just like the other two as well. The world, the world, the flesh, the world, a lot of that is discussed in the Gospel of John. The world has no authority over you. You're not a citizen of the world anymore. You're a citizen of Christ's kingdom, etc., etc. So, that's the first. Then he says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the power working of God who raised him from the dead. So he's talking about two major issues, two major aspects of Christ's atoning work. Buried and raised. Dead, buried, and raised. And he says, you were raised with him. What does that mean? It's your identity. Your new identity. You see, baptism... Well, you've heard me say this before, but I'll repeat it again. Baptism is used literally and figuratively in the New Testament. Literally, it's the ordinance of baptism. Figuratively, it's used of a new identity. You're... He says of the Jews, they were baptized with Moses. You're baptized with Christ. What does that mean? That's part of your new identity. So where you had been under the authority of the flesh, you're now under the authority of Jesus. That's your new identity. To be baptized publicly, which is part of the ordinance of baptism, is, is to say to the world, to say to everyone else, I now am publicly identifying with Jesus Christ. And the waters of, as old Baptist preachers used to say, the waters of baptism have symbolic power now for us. We have have been dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. You know, if you believe in immersion, you're taken under the water, you come out. That's symbolic of what has happened in Christ. And so Paul is saying. He has stripped away the authority of the flesh in your life and given you a new identity. The circumcision of Christ, the baptism of Christ. That's who you are. This is positional truth. When I say positional truth, do you understand what I mean by that phrase? That is your position. That's how the Father looks at you. And if, if you remember how we've talked about these words, justification, declared righteous, you are saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, you're being saved from the power of sin. Glorification, we get our brand new bodies, you will be saved from the presence of sin. So the New Testament talks about salvation as past, present, and future. Past, saved from the penalty of sin. Present, saved from the the power of sin. Future, I will be saved from the presence of sin when I get my new body. Amen. Thank you. I mean, that's, that's grand truth for us. That's, that's, that's part of our identity. That's how we're to look at ourselves, because that's how God looks at us. And so this is what Paul is trying to get across to these people at Colossae, this accomplished through faith in the powerful working of God. What's the object of your faith? What God has done for you in Christ through his death, burial, and resurrection, you appropriate all that by faith. It becomes operative in your life, not by what you do. That's why she was so ambivalent, because the JWs believe that they earn and merit the salvation of God. So she couldn't say, oh, absolutely I'm going to heaven. I absolutely have eternal life. Because she's not sure, because she doesn't know if she's worked hard enough. What a horrible, pernicious, evil way to talk about salvation. Because it puts everything on you. And the one thing, if you believe that, the one thing you will know is you're never sure if you've done enough. You're never sure. You're just hoping when you stand before God that he's having a good day and going to accept what you've done. And that sounds silly, but that's exactly right. Uh, The Islam, the Quran says that Allah has the right to even negate his character if he wishes. Well, what kind of comfort does that bring? You stand at the judgment seat before Allah. You better be praying that he is really having a good day no matter how well you've done, he may say, well, Jim Echman still, I don't want him in paradise. Rejected. I mean, that's a little silly, but that's you don't have to worry about that with the gospel. There's absolute certainty that is the declaration of the gospel. Jesus Christ paid it all. He did everything. You don't do anything except to pick up the gift in faith as you know, I've often said. And so that's what Paul is saying here. You believed in the powerful working of God who raised from the dead. The resurrection is the linchpin of biblical Christianity. Because if Jesus is still in the grave, forget it. Stop coming to this class. Go have a luxurious lunch somewhere every Wednesday. But if the resurrection is true, keep coming, I hope. And it's, 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 that, it's that significance that vital center of biblical Christianity, the resurrection. You've believed that. And so the the circumcision of Christ and the baptism of Christ are symbolic in the way he's using it here of your position. The flesh has been rendered inoperative in your life unless you give it authority, and you now have a new identity. It's another way of saying 2 Corinthians 5.17. You're a new creature in Christ and so these are tremendous thoughts but he's not done he wants to talk about further elaborating on these two positional truths establish this fact, you were once dead now you're made alive Jesus will say and Paul will say, he said of the Pharisees and Paul will say it in the book of Romans, we're dead and in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 We're dead in our sins. Absolutely hopeless condition. What does it say? You're dead in your trespasses, and uncircumcision in your flesh. God made alive. Who made the difference? You? Did you change your condition? No. God did it. God made alive together with him. So you who were once dead and trespassing in sin, God made you alive. God did it. The subject of made alive is not you. It's God. He's the one that changed it. And you appropriate all that to your, to your life by faith. So in my Bible, I just circled the word dead in verse 13 and made alive at the end of verse 13. That's the contract. You used to be dead, now you're made alive. Who did it? God did it. You didn't do it. You didn't merit it. That poor dear lady who talked to you, she's in a desperate condition. She believes a bunch of religious garbage and hopes and and, and t- trusts that she's doing enough to be a part of the hundred and forty-four thousand, but she's not sure. She at least hopes she'll be part of that that are in that gulf between the hundred and forty-four thousand and earth, but she doesn't know for sure because there's no way she can know until the day she dies, and she well now I I'm declaring you've done enough. Why would you believe in something like that? And I, I mean, I feel real strong about this stuff because so many people are caught in that trap that they have to do something to merit the favor of God. That's not Christ. Yeah, that's it. That's not the gospel. And that, tragically, that's where so many people are. Isn't that an exciting? Truth. I mean, this is so exciting. Amen. Three people are excited about it. Okay, good. You with me? I think yeah. Ed.
2: You really explained this verses 11 really well, I, I, I didn't really understand it. In the times when Paul wrote this, did they read that and
0: really understand it, or did you think Timothy was there to help? <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, you know, obviously I can't answer that because I, I I wasn't there, I don't know, but we do know, as he will say a little later on, he sends Timothy and Epaphroditus to come alongside, so he would they would continue the teaching you know as well as I do, for all of it, and I, this is my, I include myself in this, for us to really embrace the truth, we have to read about it, think about it, hear it over and over again. They tell us on how they determine this, that a human being has to hear the gospel articulated clearly at least seven times before they respond. I don't know where that statistic comes from. But it—you know I'm, a lot of people use it, I'm assuming it's accurate. So that just means, like all of us, like with little children, you just have to keep telling them the same thing over and over, and finally, the 92nd time, they get it, and their behavior changes. Well, it's it, for probably this situation, they would read it, and then they would hear Timothy. They So some are going to get it right away when they read it. Others are going to have to hear it explained, and then they say, yeah, okay, now I got it same thing. Human human condition hasn't changed the same way. But the other thing about this in some way when he uses this circumcision idea that's hitting at something that the false teachers are saying. So they may have gotten it a little more clearly because they've been hearing this false stuff. Oh this is how we should look at this circumcision idea. The circumcision of Christ is what we're interested in. Stripping away the power of the flesh. Got it. Got it. Not human circumcision made with hands. It's spiritual circumcision of Jesus stripped away the power of sarks, flesh, in my life. Got it. Okay, no
2: Okay. So is this the justification for abandoning the custom of circumcision and
0: Abandoning what?
2: The, the custom of circumcision in males. Is this why they said, because Christ was circumcised, we no longer need to be?
0: Well, uh, that's a great question. Let me answer it this way. It's, and he will say this in, other of his, in another one of his letters. He will say, this side of the cross, circumcision means nothing, which is an extraordinary statement to make. But, but he, because Christ fulfilled all this. So the idea of circumcision as being the sign of a covenant people, you don't need to worry about that anymore. That is not how you should look at it anymore because this side of the cross, those distinctives, okay. Ephesians two, eleven through twenty two, in Christ now, Jew and Gentile are equal. The 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 Jewish person who puts their faith in Christ, the Gentile puts their faith in Christ, they're equal. There's no difference anymore in what God is doing. So as I often put it, even to couples, circumcision now becomes a medical issue. Do you, I mean, you know, there's a lot of debate among them. You guys are doctors, know this debate, but it's kind of just interesting. It, the religious significance of it is irrelevant. But now it's an issue, you know, should I have my boy circumcised for medical reasons or do I think it's a wise thing to do, uh, you know, it, but it has no religious significance or identity anymore. Am I answering your question? Yes. Okay. Jim, don't you think we're all kind of... Uh,
2: that journey to, um, like Ed was saying,
0: you know, I, I never got that
2: really. Until yes.
0: Now. Oh, sure. And kind of, I mean, everyone in this room, including yourself, are. Oh, heaven. And, and isn't it just a
2: wonderful thing how God has allowed us to see
0: as we travel through our lives? Absolutely. And Absolutely.
2: And it's, that's such
0: yeah. a big your, your, your walk with Jesus and then you're reading of a scripture, whether it's devotionally or study, or you're hearing a message, you should be in a, in a kind of a process of continuing getting epiphanies. Oh, so that's what that means. Oh, now I really understand that. I mean, that's just, that's part of the journey. I mean, uh, I've been studying this stuff for 35 years, but I still have these epiphanies. I, it just, the other day I was reading some stuff preparing for another class, and I was in the Psalms, and I thought, like, oh my, oh my. Yeah. That is profound. Oh my. I mean, you know, and I go home and share it with Peggy. Well, I knew that. That's I, I've loved that song for. <laughs> it's one of her favorite. But it was just, well, What I, it was so humorous because it was one of her favorite songs. She's read it, memorized it. Just I know, honey. i that's been yeah. I know that. I am passing on some grand truth. And my wife says, "Yeah, I know. It's one of my favorite songs. I have parts of it memorized." I'm like, okay, great, thank you. So we're all in the journey. None of us have reached it. So yeah. All right, where are we here? Um, so in that verse thirteen, we be, we were dead, now made alive. Now what he does, again, the, the grammar of this is really cool. It's The grammar of this is so neat. But he's explaining, out of that verb made alive, there are four participles that define what that means. And so I wrote them up here. There are four truths that flow out of being made alive. Jim, could you, We're Jim, now, could you turn the board around? Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, Sure. It. Yeah, that's good. I don't know why. First national had a great third quarter. They ought to get me a PowerPoint projector <laughs> in here. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, could, did anybody see it? So, what I tried to do, and I really just s- uh, summarized it, but each key word is a true. So, what he says there, uh, the follow, um made a lot. Okay, made a lot. Four parts. Four truths define what that means. Number one. Forgiven of all our trespasses. Now the forgiveness there is judicial forgiveness. Judicial, once for all forgiveness. Your faith in Jesus Christ means judicially you are forgiven. You've been acquitted. You've been declared righteous. Judicially you're forgiven of all your trespasses. Now the Greek word, there are three major words for sin in the New Testament. This one that's being translated trespass means you've missed the mark. Of God's moral law, moral righteousness. Secondly, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Canceled the debt. Now, he, he will how did he cancel the debt? By paying the penalty. That's but that's the third one. So he canceled the debt. Now, this is really this is really neat. I mean it really is. Because what what he's referring to is in the Roman world, a convict who is, is being, uh, who is, it's a capital crime crime, is, is being killed for a series of crimes. There were lots of capital crimes in Rome. They would take a plaque and they would list all of the debt, all of the things that he did, and that's why he's hanging on the cross, which, by the way, is why it's significant that which was hanging over Jesus' cross. Remember what it was? This is Jesus, King of the Jews, he's being killed because he claimed to be King of the Jews, and Pilate said, "No, I'm just leaving." Jesus, King of the Jews, and so that was the charge against him. So what Paul is saying is, the record of your de- how long is the record of your debt? Oh my goodness, to take a room this size times ten to cover all mine. So that record of debt, he canceled it. Let's put it in our language. This record of debt, here's the debt you go, here's all your transgressions. What does God do? He writes across it, paid in full. Amen. That's what, that's what that means. So being made alive means my debt of sin has been canceled. I no longer have a debt I owe to God. How's that possible? I didn't earn that. I'm hardly righteous. I'm a bad guy. I've done terrible things. Because he nailed them to the cross. He paid the penalty. How could he cancel my debt? Because he paid the penalty. Now isn't that's, a, that's, a, that's an astonishing truth for us. It's the heart of the gospel, but that's an astonishing truth. Who paid the debt? Jesus paid the debt. I didn't pay the debt. You didn't pay. I couldn't die for you and it mean anything. Because I got the same problem you do. I, I can't die a death to pay the penalty for you. Because when I die, I'm paying my own penalty if I don't put my faith in Christ. You understand what I'm saying? So I mean this is just this is an astonishing way. It's an astonishing way to put it. But boy, this would have resonated with the Greco-Roman people. Wow, he did that? I don't know
1: resonates with us as much as it should. If, if
0: Well, it should. If, You're well, right. The
1: sign that was on there said, what? King of the Jews. Who is the King of
0: the Jews? God. And God in the flesh, God yeah. is the
1: King of the Jews. And so, when the sign said King of the Jews, that's why it's our debt. Is because that's why it's our debt hanging on the cross. Because we all want to be godly. That's right. That's
0: what the punishment was for for wanting to be God. Well, it's that's a rebellion. Second so, Corinthians I think it's 2 Corinthians 5 21, it says that Jesus became sin for us. You know, I mean that is just that is an awesome thought. I mean it's so God, the second person of the Trinity, who adds to his deity humanity, becomes sin for me. He's my substitutionary, atoning bloodshed substitute for me he is where I should be but he loves me so much he did it for me so he paid the debt or he canceled the debt he paid the penalty <clears throat> and there's one more thing but there was another question I saw the corner of my eye I saw a hand yes what? Um, that verse uh, which one that one that
2: says uh, God or Christ became
0: oh 2 Corinthians 5 21 I'm pretty sure that's it I, I'm pretty sure that's the, the passage but he became sin for us. Is what Paul's talking about there, uh, uh, Jim? Um, i do not quite how to articulate
2: this. I, I I know that in my life there are things that aren't right, and I continue to do things. I'm
0: absolutely, true, with true of all of us. Absolutely, and no I one feel, in this room is not true. I feel an
2: enormous <coughs> guilt, and uh, I don't know. I feel an enormous I don't know uh, about. When Christ took on the cross was on the cross, I'm sure one of his great agonies, if I feel guilt and embarrassment and all these things, part of his agony had to have been assuming all of that for me to right. assume my guilt and my anguish over mm-hmm. the way I live my life and embarrassment mm-hmm. by it. And can you imagine that magnified by millions? Of-
0: Billions, really, yeah. Yeah, I mean you're you're trying to put in human words what really happened on Golgotha that afternoon. And it, it, is, it is impossible for us, really, we can read about it like in Isaiah 53 and other parts, but to really, to really get it, what Jesus went through those hours of agony on the cross, it is unimaginable for us, really, that transaction that's occurring. Isaiah says the wrath of God is poured out on him
2: physical side of it must have been minuscule
0: compared, compared to, to yes mm-hmm. we always and that is a great comment because we always this isn't an original thought with me but we always think of the physical aspect of the cross we, never, we need to go much much deeper than that yeah. it's it's the, having the sin of the world placed on you and all those words you just talked about the guilt the anguish all Uh, that Jesus all of that was poured out on Jesus and I I believe that with all my heart I'll die for that but I'm not sure I really understand it really grasp what happened that afternoon Uh, it's just an unimaginable transaction that occurs and that's what Paul's trying to get at using the words and language which a Greco-Roman person would have understood quite clearly this is what Jesus did for you this is how God made you alive you were dead. This is how God made you a lot. And so that, uh, I, and I honestly think that's part of what really is in back of Jesus. Father in Gethsemane, isn't there another way we can do this? Can't this cup be passed from me? Can't we do this in another, I'm paraphrasing, but that's in a way what he's saying. And no, no but your will, not my will be done. I'm surrendering to your will because you, as my father, and having, you know, the Trinitarian relationship. And so it's just, a, it, is, it is hard for us to really grasp what went on that afternoon, but it's important for us to wrestle with that because that's part of what he did for us. And so, Jim, you know, as you and I experience in, in our sanctification, we're being saved from the power of sin, we still experience the guilt when we do something that displeases the Lord, but we quickly talk to the Lord about it, then it's done. That, that the judicial forgiveness is once for all. The relational forgiveness is the ongoing, what we talked about in 1 John 1, is that ongoing maintaining my relationship. I'm just talking to God about, about my sin. I'm, I'm, I'm admitting what he already says about my sin. But we, we have that capacity now to be able to rise above that guilt. It's because Jesus took the guilt and shame from me. Well,
2: until you opened this discussion, I had not really thought about that. Mm.
0: Yeah, that's great though that you are because that is part of it. It, it just uh, it's so hard for us to really, really grasp the the in depth what really went on that afternoon on April the third, A.D. thirty three. First, Fred here. It doesn't matter which whoever. Fred one, Fred two. It clutched with me. I'm not sure
2: that. what happened on the cross was was God calling in the Abrahamic covenant. God alone marched that covenant. Yep. He split that covenant while Abraham slept. Yep. And Abraham, because he knew Abraham was mortal and he, he reached why why the, why, the, why the why the things came together the did, it was a perfect time for in his in God's mind, but He called in the covenant yeah. and He made it. He made it right. Mm-hmm. he took responsible. How? Yeah,
0: and you, all the nation will be blessed. Yeah. I'm going to make sure that happens because yeah. I'm going to be the falcon of the blessing. Fred, too. Uh, can you comment on um, uh, Christ's uh, statement of what was happening in light
2: of what we just discussed?
0: Uh, when his
2: comment, Father, you know, being present, why
0: has... Why have you forsaken me? Yeah. Yeah, hard. yeah. And, and, and then what was happening in, in your
2: understanding of the scriptures at that time in of what we just discussed.
0: Here is, uh, and Jesus is quoting there from uh, one of the Psalms, and he's quoting in Aramaic when he says it, um, honestly, Fred, there is a real mystery to what all of that means because the Hebrew word, which is then translated into Greek, forsaken actually means abandoned. So how could the father abandon the son? Yeah, you, you know, you just, you, you just can't, it, that, the transaction that occurs that afternoon is impossible for us to really understand i mean that the words we use can get us close but it must mean that jesus as the god man you know undiminished deity plus perfect humanity united in one person experienced in some unimaginable way experienced separation from the father as the god man Now, God isn't split there, but I mean, it's just, as the God, mean, he experienced death. He not only experienced the physical death, which he would, you know, his body would go into the grave and all that. But he experienced that spiritual death. Because death is, in the Bible, has two meanings. The physical death, body and soul separated until it rejoins the resurrection. And the, 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 the spiritual death, which is separation from God. That's what God meant to Adam. The day you eat of that, you're separated from me. You're dead. Spiritual death. Subsequent to that will be the physical death. That's why the Bible also speaks that those at the great white throne judgment they will experience a second death, which is eternal separation from God. But for you and me who have trusted Christ, we don't need to worry about that. So, Fred, honestly, that's about as far as it can go. In some way, in that mystery of the hypostatic union of Jesus, the God, second person of the Trinity, united with the human. That God man, he experienced that spirit, spiritual separation. He experienced abandonment from God, and I don't. I don't know how. I don't understand. That. I do not know how that could happen. I well, I mean, what I, what I mean, but I cannot explain in human terms what that meant and how you would describe that. Except it was absolutely horrible for Jesus. He experienced what you and I do not ever need to experience. Because of him. Because of him. So, I mean, here again, this is how much God loves us. The extent he will do to reconcile his rebels that he created in his image to him. He, the old hymn of the church. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe, And that's the gospel. We We have to drill that down. And that's the tragedy of those folks you were talking to the other day. They don't believe that. Well, can I do... Please, can, i got to finish. We can't leave this fourth thing hanging. Look at this fourth, fourth part. This is unbelievable. Because of those three things, judicial forgiveness, canceled the debt, paid the penalty, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. These are the demonic forces led by Satan. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following. And he disarmed them. What does that mean? Their power is neutralized if you've been made alive in Christ. They have no power over you anymore. And then what else did he do? He put them to open shame. Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was, was an open shame to the liar Satan, to the deceitful Satan. To the duplicitous Satan, the liar from the beginning, Jesus says. He shamed him, triumphing over them in him. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the defeat of Satan. And he has invaded Satan's kingdom and he's taking back the planet. Step by step by step. And every time a a person trusts Christ, it tells us in the Bible, the angels just rejoice in exuberant joy. Another rebel has come to faith. Hallelujah. So, I mean, this is Satan's days are numbered. But I love that. He disarmed them. They no longer have power over the redeemed. And the only authority they could have is if we let them have it, (laughs) if we give in or whatever but putting them to open shame by triumphing over them. That oxymoron, which humanly speaking seems ridiculous, but theologically speaking, it's central. The cross is not the defeat. The cross is the triumph. And the resurrection proved it. Jesus' sacrifice is shedding of the blood, paying of the debt, paying of the penalty. How is it validated? By the resurrection. Paul says in Romans 1, the father... Raise Jesus from the dead through the Holy Spirit. So you have the Trinity involved, even in resurrection. The completed plan, it's done. And so it's a a magnificent summary of um, what Paul wants to address to these Colossians who are hearing this false teaching and apparently being somewhat influenced by it. He says, no, no, come back to Jesus. Come back to Jesus. Let's review what he did. Let's review what he did. Circum- well on the other sheet—but through circumcision and baptism, to real familiar terms, he reviews theologically your position, and then he says, no, "Look, here are the truths associated with God's made you alive. You were dead; He's made you alive. What does that mean? Four things. And this, this is this—this this little book of Colossians is one of those gems in the New Testament that we—we we, I love to teach Colossians." <laughs> That's the trumpet, the rapture.
2: <laughs>
0: that was an audiovisual effect I had planned. No, it wasn't. A, pure, pure punch. Yeah, John. Yeah. Yeah,
2: I've, I I use the NIV, and in verse fourteen they say, "Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness," and then. Um, not only did God cancel it, uh, this is the note, cancel out the accusations of the law against the Christians. Well, um, what's the legality here? Is, is, it, is it the Jewish law that they're talking about? Uh, this, the, this, this legal, well, the accusations against the Christians, is that by the Gnostics, or?
0: Uh, you're, you're throwing a lot of things there it's, into it's your a, question. It,
2: it's a debt canceled, isn't it? Yeah, it's
0: the debt canceled. But think, just think back to the end of verse 13. Has forgiven us all our trespasses. You know, that's judicial get trespass. As I said, that Greek term means you missed a mark. What's the mark? It's the moral law of God. Okay, where's the moral law of God summarized? The Ten Commandments. I'm just trying to get you to think through the connections here. So, yeah, that's Jewish. It's the Jewish idea of how you think about the law. And so Paul says, okay, if you trespasses, you missed the mark, those missing the mark, the moral law of God, you did this, you did this, you did this, all thousands and thousands and thousands of things, they're all relating to moral law of God. You missed the mark. And that's that debt. That's that debt you owe to God. It's all listed on all the paper. You know, I'm making that up. But. So what did God do? That's what I said. What God wrote across I was paid in full. I paid the price. What was the price? My son died on the cross. So he he uses, he extends the metaphor, he nailed that to the cross. How was that canceled? He paid the penalty. The
1: penalty is separation from God.
0: It's, It's death. The penalty is separation from God. And Jesus paid that debt for us. And so that's why Paul, in that triumphant cluster of verses in First Corinthians 15 because of what happened oh death where is thy sting where, where's the bite it's gone which is so marvelous it's, John am I addressing your okay okay so your thought paper in your own words explain what made alive means from the book of Colossians. Alive. Made alive. What I'm using the word phrase that's in verse 13. Made alive. So remember, those little participles all flow out of what made alive means. How could he, we're dead in our sins, how could he make us alive? Because of these four things. He judicially forgave us, he canceled our debt, he paid the penalty, and he disarmed our enemies. That's pretty complete, isn't it? Anything left out there? No, not really. Nothing left out. Well, it reminds me of some of those great hymns we sing at Easter. I'm from the great funeral, and all those great hymns. All right, you don't want me to sing, you'll leave. Okay, everybody got this marvelous, wonderful, extraordinary paragraph in chapter 2. So, he has a conclusion... Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. Those phrases and terms that he uses there relate to what must have been part of the content of this heresy, which helps us to think, as I said a moment ago, as kind of a mixture of Greek philosophy and thinking with Jewish practices, rituals, Judaism and philosophy. And he says, don't let anybody, don't let anybody question your position because of dietary laws or religious festivals or even the Sabbath." Don't let them say to you, well, you're not practicing these things right. You have no relationship with God. Oh, yes, I do. This defines my relationship because of what he's done for me. So that's why Paul can say, don't let anyone pass judgment. Don't let anyone impose upon you a set of standards that have nothing to do with the gospel. Because... All of these things relate to you performing, you doing, you acting to merit God's favor. That's not what grace is about. Stop it. And so it would have had a meaning to them in you know, the AD 60s when this was written. It would have had a meaning to them. But for you and me, How do we think about this? How do we? Because for the most part, you know, well, I think for the most part, we're not hearing from people, even in our own congregations or even in our broader fellowship with people about food and drink issues and about festivals and new moon celebrations. That's not probably something you're wrestling with. But are there people or are there Uh, movements, or are there uh, even organizations that are saying, you have to do this and this, or I'm not really sure you're a Christian. Are there legalistic, performance-based teaching, I'm using kind of 21st century ways of putting it, performance-based things that you need to do this in order to earn merit, merit favor with God? Okay, I don't know who's yeah, first. What Something
2: like somebody's still clinging to the thought that they might have
1: to burn sacrifices.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But, uh, Rob, what were you going to say?
1: Well, my observation is just the opposite of the church.
2: Too many churches are teaching that you don't even have a Christian to be saved.
0: Well, yeah, that would be... Yeah, I, I don't... That would certainly be an issue, but I don't know if that's exactly what... Try to apply that to us yeah, today.
2: It's just a, my observation. Yeah,
0: it's really yeah. Well, certainly in our uh, culture today, a growing part of our culture is it doesn't really matter what you believe, just believe it sincerely and you'll be okay, whatever that means. But Now, there is a content to believe, and that content is... I'm thinking of... Because that, that, all of these things have to do with what you do to merit God's favor. So you could put anything in there, what you do. I must, I must be diligent in knocking on doors. I have a quota of 30 to 35 a day to give people a copy of the Zion Watchtower. And so I am doing all that in hopes that I've done enough for Jehovah to accept me. That's what Jehovah's Witness says. And if I've really excelled in this, I could be part of the 144,000. What's missing in that? Grace. There's no... The grace isn't there. It's focusing on, I do, I do, I do, I do, I work, I work, I work. Hopefully, I've done enough. So Paul says... Don't let anyone pass judgment on you and talk about your spiritual state based on dietary laws, festival observances. Now, I'm going to get, I'm not going to do that because of the time, to be continued next week. I want to start with a comment on past judgment. And then we'll move on to the next section, uh, next paragraph. I, I hope, and my prayer was uh, for the hour this morning that you would you would be refreshed and and renewed, and that's probably what it. Nothing you didn't know, but refreshed and renewed in your conviction of what Jesus did for you. That, if that was achieved, that's the takeaway from the, from the class today. Praise the Lord. I mean, this is an awesome summary of what Jesus did for us. So I hope you were refreshed in that truth. Let me pray here because I'm a little late. I apologize for that. We stand in awe of you, Lord, for all, because of all you've done for us. Just as Paul is trying to address these false teachings of Colossae using, perhaps some terms that were part of the false teaching. He's giving a corrective. You used to be dead. Now you're made alive. And God did it. You didn't do it. You didn't earn it. You didn't merit it. God made you alive. How did he do that? What describes what he did? He judicially forgave us. He stamped across our life, paid in full, the debt we owed for our trespasses. And how did he do that? By paying the penalty. It's what Jesus did on the cross. And his resurrection proved that that was accepted. And then even further, he disarmed our enemies. They have no authority over us whatsoever. The flesh, the devil. What magnificent, marvelous, triumphant words that Paul has used here. It's a good review and a wonderful, hopefully, encouragement to each one of us. All that you've done for us. How much you love us. That old hymn, Jesus paid it all, all to Him I owe. Nothing, we don't merit any of this, but you've chosen to do it because you love us. And all you're asking us to do is pick up that gift and appropriate it to our life by faith. We thank you, and for for eternity we will sing your praises for what you did for us in Christ. Thank you for that, for a good reminder. Refresh us now spiritually as we go our separate ways. Watch over us, and God... We always want to pray this. Help us to sincerely want to do this, to represent you well to a world that's in darkness and needs to hear this wonderful message. We thank you for that and give us a good rest of the day. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. See you next week.